0: Hey, Collective Church. Uh, my name is Jay, and I am a pastor up here in the Silicon Valley, just uh, four or five hours north of where you all are. And like Ryan said, um, you know, months ago we had been planning for uh, for me to visit all of you. And honestly, I, I was so very much looking forward to being a part of your actual Sunday gathering in person. Um, I'm a big fan of Ryan, Uh, he's a good friend, um, become a good friend over the last couple of years and uh, love the ways in which not only he but your entire leadership team there at Collective is um, journeying along on the path of following Jesus faithfully in Los Angeles and beyond. And so uh, to be very honest, you know, this is obviously for so many us. This is surreal and strange. It is a strange time that we are in, and I'm a little sad that um, I can't be in a room with all of you, as uh, I am certain all of you are a bit sad and have gone through all sorts of different stages of grief in terms of, again, this strange time that we're we're in. Uh, However, I think we can all agree, you know, at least for right now, uh, the wise and responsible thing for us to do is um, to bless the world with our absence rather than our presence, as paradoxical and antithetical in many ways that may seem, uh, that is again the strange time that we are in. So, in light of all of that, uh, in the midst of COVID-19 and, and the 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 um, you know weird, strange, uh, nebulous waters that we're wading through together, I am I'm glad and I'm grateful to at least. Be able to connect with all of you uh, in what is a temporary compromise. You know this concession we are, we are making in this season um, to gather uh, in our homes, uh, whether it's with your family or roommates or maybe on your own. Uh, hopefully, you you don't feel quite as alone as we at least worship uh, together um, in these digital spaces. Um, you know, wh- one of the things that I uh, that I've been thinking about a lot for the last geez, probably five, six years or so in a real focused way. Uh, It's something that's really come to light in this season that we're in, and it's the intersection between the digital age and our ecclesiology, which is a big, fancy theological word meaning simply what we think about, how we understand what it means to be the church, uh, the people of God. And I would suggest the gathered people of God. How do we think about that in particular, Um, In an era of human history in which disembodied connection, and I'm using air quotes there, disembodied connection is in many ways the ethos of the digital age. And we're feeling that viscerally now uh, more than ever in this sort of season of, of forced temporary isolation. Um, there's a lot to be said here, and, and this is one of the things that Ryan and the team at Collective asked me to just share a few brief thoughts with you on this day, um, about. I know that as a church, you've been in a series about tension, entering the tension as, as you've been journeying through, uh, the gospel, uh, according to Mark, and, um, You know, there is certainly a tension here. We we feel it viscerally in our body and bones, particularly for the last couple of months as we've all been sheltering in place and hunkering down in our homes and on countless Zoom meetings and Google Hangouts and FaceTime and all of that. And certainly there is a gratitude for the technologies which allow us to stay pseudo-connected in this time of isolation and forced physical separation, but even more than that, deeper within us. Is, uh, I think for all of us, a longing to be together, to be together in truly human, embodied, tactile, physical ways. And I want us to pay attention to that, especially today, especially in the time that we are in, because... Um, digital technologies, again, as effective and helpful as they are, and I have immense gratitude right now, maybe more than ever, for uh, the tools that are available to us, which allow us to at least stay connected digitally some way. Um, I'm grateful for those things, but we have to pay attention because uh, this is not going to be a surprise to any of you who've thought about this for any amount of time, digital technologies, like all technologies and like all things, even good things in life, have an insidious underside uh, that when we place anything, and in particular, the technologies at our disposal, when we place them in positions of influence and power uh, in our lives where they never belong, they, again, have this insidious underside and um, they do the work of unforming us and reforming us often in dangerous ways. And this is of utmost importance because formation is essentially um, what discipleship to Jesus is all about. What I mean by that? is to be a disciple of Jesus, meaning to be a student or an apprentice um, to Jesus, to learn and to live the way of Jesus, uh, means by its essence, in its essence, it means to be formed into the likeness of Jesus. Formation is what discipleship is. Uh, there's this passage in 2 Peter chapter 1, in the opening lines of his letter, Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, in verse 3, the writer Peter, he writes this: He says that his divine power, God's divine power, has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. So God has given us through his divine power, everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him uh, who has called us by his glory and goodness. And in our Christian lives, I think so often we stop right there, particularly in the modern world, especially in the digital age. And if I can just get enough knowledge, in other words, information, um, then I can achieve a Godly life. But the passage continues. In verses 4 through 10, Peter then says this And and through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. And for this very reason, make every effort. To add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, and ultimately love. And then, verse 8, he says, For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just pause there for a moment ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What that means, we can infer is that it is possible to have all the knowledge we need. It is possible to attain all the information that we need and yet still be ineffective and unproductive in our discipleship and our following and living, learning and living the way of Jesus. And then Peter continues in verse nine, but whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, he repeats this phrase, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. There's so much here that we can delve into, but what I want to focus on is, again, this dichotomy that I was trying to hint at earlier. In verse three, it tells us, Paul, uh, Peter tells us that God's given us everything we need through our knowledge of him. And yet he continues. In, in essence, knowledge, information is crucial, but it is not enough. It's step one in many ways of a much longer process. And he continues. And a couple of times he says, here's what it takes. Make every effort, participate in the life of following Jesus. This is an invitation not just to know, not just to be informed, but to make an effort with your entire being. I mean, he lists off some practical examples of this, right? Self-control, perseverance, uh, mutual affection, love, faith, all of these things, they, they are acts of participation in which we make an effort. Not just knowing, not just being properly informed, but participating and making an effort with our whole selves, our entire bodies, in ways that really truly form and shape us, in ways that knowledge and information alone cannot possibly uh, accomplish. Um, the great, late, great writer Dallas Willard, he was he famously coined this phrase. He said, Grace, God's grace, is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. While we certainly cannot earn the grace of God, that would no longer make it grace. We certainly are called, we're invited to make an effort, to make every effort, to participate. Not just to know or to be properly informed, but to participate and to make every effort in the life of discipleship, in the life of being formed into the likeness of the risen Christ. And so in light of this, we have to recognize and confront, in many ways, what I would call digital technologies Unformational trajectory, and, and this is true not just of digital technology, but this is um, the common theme of theme of all technologies. That all technologies have what I would consider an unformational trajectory, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I, I'll um, I'll use an example here to to sort of explain what I mean. Let's let's take uh, transportation technology just as an example. Um, transportation technology. What I mean by that is extending the human capacity to travel, right, from one place to another. Uh, Up until about 5,500 to 6,000 years ago, um, for human beings, if they wanted to get from point A to point B, they only had one option. They only had one transportation technology available to them, and that was their, their two feet beneath them, right? That's how you traveled. That was it. If you wanted to get from point A to point B, the only technology available to you to make that journey were your two feet beneath you, right? And then about 5,500 years ago or so, uh, they think, in what is now modern-day Kazakhstan, um, somebody looked out on a field and saw a wild horse and thought to themselves, if I jump on the back of that wild beast, look how fast it runs. I may actually be able to get from point A to point B much faster, much quicker, much more efficiently than just walking or even running with my own two feet. And so somebody, some at some point in modern-day Kazakhstan about 5,500 years ago, took the risk and jumped on the back of a horse. Now think about this. I've never been horseback riding. Some of you have. But what I have heard from all of my friends who've ever been horseback riding, what they tell me is that riding a horse requires immense skill and strength. Like the first time you jump on the back of a horse, even with a saddle and all of that, It requires a lot of strength and skill. That's why you typically don't do that just on your own. You have a trained person who's sort of guiding you along. And so this giant leap forward in in transportation technology from our human feet to riding a horse, this first leap forward in transportation technology required immense strength and skill, right? Now, fast forward to the late 19th century. They think it was about the year 1885 when the German engineer Carl Benz created the very first, at least commercially viable automobile. So in 1885, we, we um, have another giant leap forward from the horse to uh, the first commercially viable automobile, right? And the first automobiles were these giant contraptions of machinery. They were just hunks of metal uh, where you're grinding gears and you're just, with all of your strength, pulling on the steering wheel. There's no such thing as power steering or uh, automatic transmission, none of that stuff, right? So um, just like 130 years ago or something, we have this giant leap forward. And the first automobile required, strength and skill. It still required a lot of strength and skill. Now, a different sort of strength and skill than riding a horse, and some would argue probably a little bit less overall strength and skill, but still a lot of strength and a lot of skill. You had to learn how to control this giant contraption, which if you weren't able to control it, you were in great danger, just as as what's true with a horse, right? And then you fast forward from 1885, a little less than half a century uh, or about half a century or so, and in the late 1930s, um, Cadillacs and Oldsmobiles uh, release commercially, for the very first time, automatic transmission vehicles. And so now, again, about 50 years after the first commercially viable automobile, we have another leap forward in transportation technology where you have a car that no longer requires you to manually shift the gears, the car does the shifting for you. This is automatic transmission. And so these cars, Cadillacs and Oldmobiles in the late 1930s, early 40s, still required some strength and skill to drive, but certainly far less strength and skill than the first automobiles. You see where this is going. You see where the trajectory is headed. A little bit less strength, a little bit less skill. You no longer have to manually shift the gears. The car does the work for you. This is how technology works. It makes our lives a little easier, a little more convenient, and, um, and by by its very nature, it requires us to do less. It demands less of us. That's how technology um, technology works. And then you fast forward to today, and I'm skipping over all sorts of other leaps forward, but you you get the point. You fast forward to today, and we have now what you would call computational cars. The Tesla is a beautiful, wonderful example of this. No longer do you have to, it's not just about not having to shift the gears. You certainly don't have to shift the gears anymore if you don't want to, but even more so than that, the car does so much of the driving for you. For example, like parallel parking. When I first started learning how to drive, that was like, that was the thing that kept me up at night. How do I parallel park? I'm gonna hit the car behind me. I'm afraid I'm gonna scrape the car in front of me. How do I do this, right? You're taking like 28 points of turn to, to try to you know fit your car in this little space. And now we have cars, computational cars that have tiny little computer chips in them with cameras and sensors that can do all of that work for you. So now I pull up to a spot that I think I can fit in and I push a button and I lean back and just wait as the car does the parallel parking for me. You see where this is headed. It's way less strength, way less skill. And where we may be headed now is the self-driving car. And I don't know if those are going to come out um, quickly soon. I don't know. But there's a very good chance that when my children, who are five and almost two, when they're ready to drive, they may not need to drive. They may very well live in a world where cars do the driving for them, where the computer takes you where you need to go. They very well may get to the age of 16, 17, 18, whenever, when we normally would have taken our driver's license tests and stressed out about whether we're going to pass or not. And they may look at me, I don't know if this is true, but certainly this seems to be the trajectory. They may look at me and say, Dad, why do I need a driver's license? I just hop in and I push a button and I type in the GPS coordinates and then boom I just sit back and you know scroll my social media feed and 10 minutes later I'm where I need to be you see the trajectory here this is technology's trajectory not just with transportation technology but with all technologies the the, the driving ethos behind technology is to make our lives far more convenient far more comfortable and the way it does that is it unforms. It unforms our strength and our skill. Now, this is all well and good when it comes to things like driving, I think, right? What they say is that self driving cars will actually eliminate human error, it'll make the roads much safer. That's a big benefit if that is true. However, The reason this matters so much when we think about the church and in particular what it means for us collectively as the people of God to be formed into the image of Christ, to learn and to live the way of Jesus. The reason this matters is because by its very nature, again, going back to 2 Peter, the life of discipleship to Jesus, the life of following Jesus communally as his gathered people demands our participation. We cannot be formed into the likeness of Christ without making every effort. Discipleship demands the use of our strength and our skill. Not just the use, but the ongoing development, strengthening and development of our strength and our skill. This is why the intersection between digital technologies and the church is something we have to pay attention to. Because the life, again, of following Jesus, discipleship to Jesus, learning and living his ways is a life that demands that we steadily learn day by day, growing and developing in our strength and our skill. It is not something we can acquiesce to the technologies that are before us. It's something we have to participate in together in wholly embodied ways. The writer Dallas Willard, again, he says this in his fantastic book, Uh, The Great Omission. He says that the greatest need facing the world today, with all its heartbreaking needs, um, is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence, existence. steadily learning. Um, And that's something that technology cannot do for us. So why does this matter so much? Uh, There's lots of reasons, but just one sort of big picture overview. Digital technologies in particular, the digital age and the technologies of the digital age, they are driven by three key values. And these three key values are speed, choice, and individualism. Uh, What I mean is this. All digital technologies are driven by speed. Everything is constantly faster, faster, faster. You, Many of you who are old enough, you remember when you first got internet in your home and you had dial-up, remember that, in the late 90s? That's what I had when we first had internet. And uh, you remember how slow it was, right? But it didn't feel that slow at the time. You remember how clunky it was, how loud it was when it was like using your phone line to connect and then your mom would get on the phone and you would lose internet access and you got so upset. But even and still, as slow as it was in hindsight, to me at the time, it was like magical. It was like, oh my gosh, I, I sure I have to wait seven minutes to log on, but once I'm on, I have access to this incredible world of information, right? And data and, and all of those things. And now, just a short two decades later, think about going to somebody's house and saying, hey, what's the Wi Fi password? And, you're, and the person tells you, oh, we don't have Wi Fi, we have dial up. You'd be like, what? Like, what sort of barbaric. Person, are you? You know, like dial up. What are you talking about? Everything is faster, faster, faster. And then choice. In the digital age, we have an endless array of choices, like literally an endless array of choices. Like think of any one thing you want, and you can go online in a matter of seconds, you will have page after page of, of options and choices. And then finally, individualism, right? In the digital age, All of our experiences on digital technologies are driven by our individual preferences and likes and quirks and nuances. In fact, um, we don't even do sort of the customizing of our digital experiences ourselves anymore. Computer machine algorithms do that work for us. This is why we've all had that really creepy experience of like, think, like having a conversation with a friend about some car you're interested in. And the next time you're on social media, you're scrolling through your feed and all of a sudden there's an advertisement for that car. Like this, it's kinda crazy, a little creepy, but this is the reality of our digital age, that all of our digital experiences are increasingly becoming customized and personalized around what we like, what we're interested in. And so speed, choice, and individualism, these are the key components, the values of the digital age. The problem is this, like all values, when they go unchecked for long enough, when they go unheld, unaccountable for long enough, values can turn incredibly vicious. And this is certainly happening in the digital age. The speed of the digital age is making us incredibly impatient. Um, we no longer are willing to wait for things because everything has to be faster, faster, faster. So the speed is making us impatient. All of the choices are making us incredibly shallow. I mean, why linger and dig deep, excavate to the depths of anything when I have a million other options that I can move on to if that one thing doesn't hit exactly the way I want it to the moment I experience it? It's making us incredibly shallow. We no longer have... um, the capacity, we're losing our capacity, our aptitude for sinking deeply into one thing or one idea for any length of time. And finally, the individualism of the digital age is making us incredibly isolated. Uh, I don't have to tell you, especially uh, in light of the season that we're in um, with the COVID-19 and our forced isolation, I don't have to tell you Um, because you're feeling it viscerally in your body and bones, that as much as our uh, technologies allow us to connect over screens, it's an incredibly isolating feeling when this is all we have. We're really feeling that now in this season that we are in. What's the problem here? The problem is that when these values turn us into impatient, shallow, isolated people, Impatience, shallowness, and isolation. Those three things stand in direct opposition to the life of following Jesus. They stand in direct, stark contrast opposition in a diametrically opposed position to the life of discipleship, which I would suggest to you is by its nature patient, deep, and communal, not impatient, shallow, and isolated. The life of following Jesus demands that we are patient, it demands that we do deep work, and it is by its very nature a communal exercise that we do with others. Let me show you. Jesus himself uses um, ag- uh, agrarian metaphors t- count, time and time again to describe what it looks like to follow him. Let me just show you one example. In the gospel according to John in chapter 15, Jesus says these words. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers, and such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And this is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Vine and branches. For a branch that is attached to a vine to bear fruit, think about all that needs to happen. First, it is an incredibly patient work. Any of you who've ever grown fruit or vegetables in your backyard, you know this. You don't plant a seed, water the seed, and the very next morning, you have this abundance of fruit. That's not how it works. You plant a seed, You water the seed, you hope and pray the seed gets enough sunlight and all these things that in some ways are outside of our control. And over long periods of time, weeks, months, sometimes a year or more, you finally begin to bear fruit. It's an incredibly patient work. Think about fruit, where the genesis of the fruit that you hold in your hand. Think about how deep the life of that fruit runs. It digs from the the fruit, goes into the branch, which is a part of the vine, which digs down beneath the soil in places that you cannot see. Life is teeming beneath the dirt, in the darkness of the soil, in deep places that you cannot see or get to quickly. Branches bearing fruit is a deep work. And think about all that is involved in fruit being born out of a branch. There is, of course, the fruit, which tastes delicious or whatever. But then there is all of this life happening in the branch, which is then happening in uh, the vine, which is then happening in the dirt and in the soil, which demands water, which demands sunlight, often demands pruning. There are all these different elements, communal elements that work in harmony with one another in order for us to to experience the fruit. It's an incredibly communal work. And the life of following Jesus is like bearing fruit from a branch that is attached to a vine. It's patient, it's deep, and it's incredibly communal. So in light of that, again, This is why it matters so much that we thoughtfully and in many ways critically consider our engagement with digital technology, particularly when it comes to our ecclesiology, how we understand and participate in what it means to be the church, God's people together. One of the things, there's so much we can get into here, but one of the things that I think is so pertinent to the time that we are in now is um, the, the all-important call to um, continue to gather. Now, I know that this seems paradoxical because we are in a time when we can't physically gather. You are watching this in your living room or your dining room or bedroom or wherever, and you're watching this with maybe like a roommate or your family or alone. You know, physically at least. And so I understand the paradox of this. But again, remember that this is a temporary compromise. This is a temporary concession we are making to stay somewhat pseudo-connected while we are apart. But when this is all over, I think it's going to be so vitally important for us, not just here at Collective, but followers of Jesus all over the world, So vitally, crucially important that we pay very careful attention to this surprising angst that is rising amongst us. That something about this sort of connection falls short. That we're grateful for the opportunity to be able to at least somewhat stay connected. But that this sort of connection for all the talk that this is like the new normal and the church has changed forever and we've got to go digital everywhere all the time. Pay attention to how not normal, how subhuman in many ways this experience feels. The thing inside of you that longs to be in embodied ways with one another. That's not just like a psychological phenomenon. That's not just like emotional fatigue of being in your house for too long. That is is something intrinsically tied into your DNA as an embodied human being made in the image of a relational God who at the beginning of time, in Genesis 1 and 2, we read that he creates um, and he orders out of uh, the darkness and out of the disorder. And he does so by taking dirt and flesh and creating male and female, the very stuff of earth, like real stuff of earth, dirt and body and bones. And because of this, because we are tactile, physical, embodied creatures made out of love for relationship, anything and everything, that attempts to connect us in disembodied, unphysical, nonphysical ways will always fall short. This is why it's going to matter so much that when this is over, we continue to do the all important work of gathering together. And listen, when COVID-19, when coronavirus is over, when the bans are lifted and we are able to physically gather again, I think that there is going to be like this celebratory, certainly there may be some apprehension and some anxiety about like health and is everything clean all those things and and that's fair. But ultimately the long run, the long game here is that ultimately at some point we are Going, there's going to be a celebratory rush back um, into physical embodied gatherings and presence with one another. But here's the thing. That reality, that angst inside of us that longs to be with one another, my hope and prayer is that it doesn't just come and go. Because once we're able to gather again, uh, after the initial novelty of being able to be together again ru- um, you know, sort of wears off we will quickly remember that being shoulder-to-shoulder as the church is actually really difficult. That in many ways, what we're doing here is quite convenient. It's really comfortable. Um, Because here's the deal. When you show up to collective, like physically show up to collective, it's very different than what you're experiencing now, watching in the comfort of your own home. Because when you go to the building and you're shoulder-to-shoulder in this room full of dozens and dozens of people, You didn't choose all of those people. You didn't craft that space and that experience to simply be surrounded by people who are just like you, who have the same quirks and personalities and likes and dislikes as you the way we can with digital experiences. It's actually quite inconvenient and it can be really uncomfortable. And in the digital age, one of the reasons why we so, at least on the surface, so love our digital experience and experiences and digital spaces is because it's, again, it's really convenient and we can frame it and craft it in a way where we're just compatible with everybody that we're with on digital spaces, in digital spaces. But the writer, Brett McCracken, he says this in a book called Uncomfortable, commitment Matters more than compatibility when it comes to the life of of discipleship, when it comes to the life of the church. So that's my encouragement to you, Collective. In this time when we are forced into isolation, physical separation from one another, make sure that you are committing to your community. Committing, not because everyone's compatible with you, but because this is the body of Christ to which God has called you. Commit to this body in real ways. You know, the Bible, the New Testament in particular, is full, it's chock full of all of these one another's, right? Serve one another, bear with one another, speak to one another, meet together, encourage one another, offer hospitality to one another, experience fellowship together, confess to one another, listen, learn, pray, and eat together. And the list goes on and on. And at best, these are things that we can just sort of scratch the surface of digitally. And at worst, right, the reality is these things are are, are impossible to do digitally. And so we long for the day when we can gather again to be with one another in wholly embodied ways, to make every effort together, to participate together as the people of God in being formed and shaped into the image of Christ together. Um, Along those lines, I, I just so desperately wish uh, that this was in person with all of you that I could see your faces and um, shake your hands and give you hugs and all those things which sound so strange and crazy now in the midst of COVID-19 but there's just nothing that can replace embodied presence with each other and so uh, although I can't be with you in person today I'm so grateful that we had a chance to at least connect this way and make an introduction. And I do hope and pray for the day that um, someday, that we, you, and I will be able to uh, encounter each other in embodied ways. But more importantly, that you, as a church community collective, will someday, when this is over. Uh, Re, reimagine what it means to be the church and, and be filled, infused with a brand new, not only appreciation, but deep theological and um, uh, emotional and psychological uh, appreciation and, and leaning into. Um, the opportunity you have to continue to gather as the people of God, to do the patient and deep and communal work of being formed into the image of Jesus together, of following Him together as His body.